last um, five or six Sundays or so, we've been, um, every Sunday, getting on our church bus, and we've been visiting a city in the New Testament to see what the church was like, what the church had to be like in order to survive and thrive um, wherever it was. And this morning, we're going to get on the church bus again. We're going to go to a place, a city called Philippi. But before you get there, how would you like to spend a day in London? That'd be good. Okay, about four of us want to go. The rest of you can stay here, you know. I don't, I don't know. I used to know London very well. I traveled there many times. London's a fascinating city um, of history and museums, castles, Buckingham Palace, the Tower of London, Trafalgar Square, all kinds of places, and taking trips on the tube. That's the underground that goes around London and so on. So we're going to take a walk down Oxford Street. Ladies, if you want, you do some shopping. Oxford Street, that's not nice. You are not very enthusiastic this morning. You really got to get with the tour, okay? Down Oxford Street. You get to Marble Arch. And just before you get there, you turn left and go down a block or so. And you find yourself standing in front of a huge building on a, a street called Grosvenor Square, Grosvenor Street. You say, what kind of a building is that? Well, I got to tell you, you and I might have difficulty getting in the door. But... If Pastor Cindy was with us, and she brought her passport, and she stopped at the door and showed her passport, she would get in. What is the building? The American Embassy. And they might say there were things like, are you an American? And Pastor Cindy says, no, I'm from Texas. (laughs) Which I think is different, is that right? (laughs) Every country has embassies. And so inside the door of the American embassy, they know and she would know she's back home. This is American soil in the midst of London. We have the same in cities all over the world, an embassy. Now, I'm going to say to you this morning, you need to hold that thought and that picture, okay, through this morning's message. You've got to hold on to that picture. So we get back on the VC Church bus and we're off to Philippi. Philippi is in a Greek province. All around it is a Greek province, a Greek culture. But what you've got to know is that Philippi is a Roman city in the middle of a Greek province. It meant that it was founded by Rome. And in the city of Philippi, Roman ideas, Roman customs, Roman culture, everything that shaped what happened there all came from Rome. You lived in Philippi with the same rights, the same dress, the same privileges, the same freedom from extra taxation as though you actually lived back in Rome. It was a fragment of Rome. And to understand this, it was given a title. It was called a colony. And you got to understand that to understand Philippians. Don't get that and you won't miss, you won't get Philippians. Paul, for instance, in Acts 16.21 was in Philippi. The people were upset because he was upsetting their Roman lifestyle. He said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to practice or, or to accept. As a city, a Roman city, it gave allegiance to Caesar. The great Caius, Caesar is Lord. They bowed their knee to this imperial Rome. Now, this little letter to Philippians, only four chapters, 
Usually it's seen as a reference about joy and warmth. The idea of joy actually appears 16 times in this small book. It's a warm letter of praise and thanksgiving between Paul and the church at Philippi. Because, you see, what had happened was the church at Philippi had sent Paul a gift, probably a monetary gift and some other things. And this gift had come by a man called Epaphroditus. And so they told Epaphroditus, you stay in in Rome and you help Paul as much as you can. But when he was in Rome with Paul, Epaphroditus became gravely ill. In fact, he almost died. And Paul is now sending Epaphroditus back to Philippi, back to his home church. And he wants them to understand that in no way did Epaphroditus fail. Not at all. In fact, he almost cost him his life for what he did. But I'm sending him home, and I want to send him home with thanks. That's what causes the letter to the Philippians to be written. But subtly woven into this letter um, is a powerful picture of the church and what it needs to be in the land in which he lives. And this comes from one verse. You'll need, if you don't have your Bible open yet, please open to Philippians, okay? Or your iPads, whatever. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. This is the hinge for my idea today. This is the picture I want to give you today. Okay? Philippians 3 and 20. But our citizenship, that's a key word, is from heaven. And we eagerly wait a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on to talk about how he will transform our body to be like his glorious body. But the phrase you need to just stick with for the moment is our citizenship is in heaven. The word, it actually is the word in Greek, polituma. It gives us our English word, politics. The closest idea we have to that word is the word embassy. Because remember, in an embassy, the manners, the lifestyle, the customs, the habit, the language of the homeland are spoken. And that's the word that was used to describe the status of Philippi as a colony city of Rome. It was a polytuma. Its citizenship was not did not come from the Greek colony that surrounded it, its citizenship really was located somewhere else back in Rome. So when the Philippian Christians heard this, our citizenship, they knew exactly what it meant. And how when their citizenship was from heaven, it described them. It says to them, to this church, in the midst of this Roman city in a Greek province, you are to be an embassy of heaven and earth where the lifestyle, the language, the customs, the habits of your homeland, which is heaven, are to be practiced here and now. The church that's to survive in today's culture will need to be a church that understands it. Here's a big word. It's the eschatological colony of heaven and earth. Got it? That's today's big word. Eschatology. I got that coming up? There you go. Eschatology means all of the teaching that relates to and surrounds the return of Jesus Christ. It really means the last things. Jesus said that he would come again for us. I go to prepare a place for you. That's eschatology. It gathers up all that we see and believe of our hope as Christians, which comes not from us. It really comes from heaven. It's located in heaven. And we are to be an embassy of heaven a commonwealth of heaven back here on earth. So when our society looks at the church, they should not think 
There's a bunch of people trying to hold on to the past. Rather, they should be thinking. Now, there's a bunch of people who are so far ahead of the rest of us, we wonder where they get their ideas from. And those ideas, those truths, which are to shape the attitudes, the habits, the customs, the lifestyle of this colony of Christians on earth in Vancouver, are the habits and the customs that are already practiced in heaven. The church is to be a community of Christ that brings the ideas and the lifestyle, the habits of the and the language of heaven back, as it were, from the future into the present. And the only place, catch this, the only place where the church is going to find those essential gifts to live like a spiritual colony on earth is to discover them in the courts of heaven where they are already practiced and then bring these sacred gifts gently back to the church on earth, which is to be a colony, an embassy of heaven on earth. Got it? Got it? Good. And so woven into the four chapters of Philippians are some examples of the attitudes, the habits, the lifestyles which can be found only in heaven. We discover them as we think about heaven, as we sing about heaven, as we worship about heaven, and then we carry them back into the church and we have to put them to work. That's what makes us an embassy when we reflect the lifestyle of our homeland where our real passport is stamped, heaven. Got it? Four things, just headings for us. You've got to fill in a lot of stuff in your own mind. What does it mean to be an embassy which practice humi- to be an embassy of humility? in a city of selfishness. Somehow, it seems that selfishness is not far from most of us. It's the need and the drive to be ahead of the other person, to get what we want, to be first. Last weekend, Harry and I and drove to Vernon to see our daughter and her husband, two little boys. And um, on the Coquihalla and the Merritt Connector, you, you can do 110K, which is pretty okay for me. There's always someone wanting to get ahead of me. 110K is not fast enough. I just let them go. Selfishness is about the power, drawing power to ourselves and away from other people. Power is about winning. Coming out on top in large or small issues doesn't matter. Selfishness is about competing with other people and having to win. People play those games every day. And because the church is people, sadly, we sometimes play those kinds of games of power in the church. They played them at Philippi. Look at chapter 4 with me, okay? Chapter 4, verse 1. It begins with four if statements. Four if statements. And I won't bore you with the details, but the way they're structured in Greek, um, there is an assumed answer in every case, and the answer is always yes. So Paul begins with four things. He says, if you have any encouragement from being united in Christ. And the answer to that is, yes, we do. If there's any comfort from his love, the answer is, yes. If there's any fellowship in the Spirit, the answer is, yes. If we have any tenderness and compassion, the answer is, yes. So Paul says, if these things are a reality amongst you in your relationships, And people say, yes, 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 yes. Paul says, verse (laughs) 2, 
excuse me, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. You cannot be one in spirit and purpose, folks, if you want to be selfish. You just can't do that. Do nothing, verse 3, out of selfishness, selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Verse 4, each of you should look out not only to your own interests, in other words, what I want, what I would like, but also to the interests of others. So in a culture that says, look out for yourself, get ahead of the other guy, here is a colony of people, an embassy of people, who are invited to live and to think in a truly counter-cultural fashion, which is to surrender personal agendas and desires for the greater good of others. It means to think and to ask and to act in a way that looks out for the interest needs of the other person and for the colony, because one day we are going to have to surrender our own will, and we will have to surrender it in heaven. We might as well start practicing now. It seems that humility, though, is not natural to our hearts. Because without God, we lean to pride. Our hearts are biased towards selfishness. We have a bent towards power. So what do we have to do? Well, we have to look into the courts of heaven and what do we see? We see that humility was an attitude of the heart that was practiced in heaven. And by whom? By Jesus. If you've got your Bible still open, Chapter 2, verse 5. Let your attitude be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, although he was in the very nature God, he did not consider quality with God something to be grasped. Not to be held on to say, that's mine. But he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being in a human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself became obedient to death, even death on the cross. The humility that Jesus displayed and demonstrated on earth was part of his essential nature, his essence in heaven. And it was practiced in heaven when he did not hold on to his equality with God, but rather he gave it up. What he already was in heaven, he became on earth. Heaven is not about power. It is about worship and humility from everyone except the Father. Remember we pray our Father who lives in heaven, your will be done on earth as it is done on heaven. And when we start to think about and wonder about and meditate on that attitude in heaven and worship this Christ who thought like that and lived like that, both in heaven and on earth, Paul said, you know what? Your mind, your attitude, Your disposition to other people should be the same. Bring that thought and that attitude, he says, bring it from heaven and start to put it into practice in the colony of the church on earth. This piece of the future that God has broken off and placed in our culture. And if a culture is naturally selfish, then our lives will be seen as countercultural. In the same fashion, you know, that Jesus' whole practice of his leadership is How he led people was based on humility. His style of leadership was to be willing to take off a robe and wrap a towel around his waist and get down on his knees and wash feet. 
What does it mean to be a leader today in this colony of heaven, this outpost of hope? It'll mean that. Leaders will be defined and seen as those who serve. That's the heart of the prayer of of Chronicles. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear them from heaven, says God, and forgive their sin and heal their land. All of us in some way or another want God to use us and raise us up, don't we? Peter tells us how to do that. He says, humble yourselves under God's mighty hand so that in due time, that means in his time, not my time, his time, he may raise us up. Humility is one of the marks of this embassy of heaven and earth. Let's move on. What does it mean to be an embassy of light in a culture of darkness? Perhaps the most common symbol of, of God and the Christian truth is light. God is light. Jesus said he was the light of the world. We are called to be children of light. In heaven there is no need for light. Because the Lamb of God is the light of heaven. The darkness around us, the darkness in us is gone. Here's what Revelation says. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light. And the Lamb is its lamp. The nations walk by its light and the kings of the earth bring their splendor to it. No one will ever shut their gates for there will be no night there. So light is a constant in the city of God in Revelation. And when you think about that, and if you begin to worship on that, you realize that those days are just ahead, just around the corner, and you don't have to leave them there. Because the church is to be a fragment of that truth. An embassy of light in the midst of darkness. We are a colony of the future. An eschatological community. And Paul to Philippians, look again, chapter 2, verse 14. (coughs) Do everything without complaining or arguing. I really wish sometimes he hadn't said that. Because we complain and we argue. Paul says, do everything without complaining or arguing. So that, get verse 15. So that you may be blameless and pure, children of God without fault, in a crooked and perverse means twisted generation. And notice the last phrase, he says, in which you shine like stars in the universe. The NIV translation there gets it right. We are stars, says Paul, set against the darkening moral sky. And the light of heaven is not just for tomorrow. The light of heaven is for today. The church is to catch in his hands the, the light that streams from heaven like a small child trying sometimes to carry too much. But we clutch what we can and we bring it back from heaven and we drop it into the lap of the church and say, we are to be the stars of God set against the darkness of the sky. That's what enables the church to live in the world as an embassy of heaven. We are a shaft of light broken off for people to help people see, set like stars in the sky. <coughs> in your office this coming week, in school, in university, in hospital, classroom, wherever you work, in the darkened streets, God has placed you to be a star set against the sky to navigate people back to the truth. And it's only when we're truly heavenly minded we've seen the light of heaven will be of any earthly use to people like that. Got to move on. 
What does it mean to be an embassy? Remember our picture, be an embassy of peace. And a culture that's stressed out. Our culture is so much one of noise and worry and stress. These three things, worry, noise and stress, are the trinity in our modern world. Most of us would have to confess at one time or another, we get caught up in them, we get trapped by worry and noise and stress. Noise makes us edgy. Worry brings us to the edge of panic. And stress is really often what paralyzes us. They come sometimes in the middle of the night and they rape us when we are asleep. They rob us of sleep and stillness. And I confess to you that I am often one of the silent victims of these robbers, worry and stress. Maybe you are also. But is that the way God intended his colony of people to live? Not at all. Where do we find an answer? Where do we find a remedy for this? Well, once again, it's not in medication and it's not in meditation. You look into the courts of heaven and there you will find that peace is a gift of heaven. Jesus is the one who holds it and then opens his hands and he gives it to us. John 14, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I give you peace that the world doesn't give. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. John 16, I've told you these things so that he says, in me, you may have peace. He says, in the world, you will have trouble. The Greek word is phlipsis. It's the word for pressure. In the world, you will find stress. But take heart, says Jesus. I've overcome the world. Jesus says, and I have taken a gift from the colony of heaven and given it to you as the church. That gift is a gift of peace. Look at Philippians again, chapter 4, verse 6. Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God which transcends your understanding, which is beyond all of your human logic, will stand guard over your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now, every Christian in Philippi would know what stand guard meant. It was a picture of a Roman soldier standing on guard duty, on sentry duty at some door. They would see that all over the city, remember. Keeping some unwanted and unwelcome person from invading what he was guarding. Guarding. Jesus says, I come and I give you peace. And let peace stand as a sentry at the door of your heart and mind, keeping worry and stress at bay. I'm convinced that most of us can handle all kinds of work if we're free from worry. We can handle all kinds of work. I'm one of these strange work kind of people. I actually think work is fun. I really do. I think work is fun. And I can handle all kinds of work. But what paralyzes me and what paralyzes you, it brings on an emotional and sometimes a physical heart attack, is worry. It is not work. It's worry. That's what gets us. But peace says, Tom, I will come and stand guard at your heart and mind. And I will give you freedom from worry. Not so that you can stay in bed. I will give you freedom from worry so that you can get on with the work. Can you imagine a church in a city being known as a place, a colony, an embassy, 
of peacemakers and peace givers. When people are under stress, their marriages and their family, what do people do? Well, if they would know that at the corner of, where are we, 57th and Culloden or something, we're close to that. Here is a group of people in this neighborhood who are an embassy of peace. They have a reputation in the middle of worry and stress. Somehow they understand the gift and the practice of peace in their lives. Let's go visit them. That's what Paul is saying to us. That we're to be an embassy, a commonwealth of peace in the midst of the stress of this life. And when the church sees itself as a colony of heaven and becomes the custodian of the peace of heaven, hardly anything today could make the church more relevant and more countercultural all at the same time. Last picture. What does it mean to be an embassy of joy in a city that's looking for happiness? We live out in Vancouver in a city where I think you know and I know that people are spending all kinds of money. A Sunday today, all kinds of time, all kinds of experiences. And what they're doing is they're looking for happiness. They will buy every new gadget they can to try to find happiness. God offers us so much more. God offers us something far beyond happiness. He offers us joy. Joy. Sixteen times in the four chapters of Philippines. He talks about his gift of joy. And here's my definition of joy for you this morning. Joy comes as a gift from God when we connect the events of daily life to his higher purposes. That's what joy is. Some things in life make us happy. Some things in life, frankly, don't make us happy. But what gives us joy is when we can connect the events of daily life, the good, the bad, sometimes the ugly, when we can connect them to the higher purposes of God. The book of James says to us, Consider it my joy, brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kind, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, perseverance finishes work, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. James says, when you are on that road, consider it joy. Because God's at work. Hebrews says of Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. He looked beyond what was happening. And he connected what was happening in his life, even in those last days. He could connect that to the higher purposes of God. And that was joy. Just imagine in this beautiful city of Vancouver, if every church if every gathering of Christians saw themselves and believed themselves to be an embassy of heaven, people who believe everything about heaven, who stand on their tiptoes and see even a glimpse of its glory, and then they bring the attitude of humility they've seen from Jesus all the way from heaven back to earth, put it to work. They see how the light of God in his city just shines and shines and they bring that back to earth. They take the peace that Jesus gives them and they practice that in their embassy, their colony, their life, their relationships down here. And they connect themselves to the joy that comes from heaven. They bring that down to earth. Just imagine. Just imagine that. 
Where would we start? Perhaps we start today what we'll do one day, which is we break off a piece of a great hymn of worship that resonates in heaven. We start it now. We rehearse a great song, a great hymn, a kind of national anthem for those who wear the barge of eternity, whose names are written on the book of life. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back. I'm going to invite you to stand. Remember in, in the city of Philippi, this Roman colony, this Roman embassy, people knew that great exhortation. They knew what they shouted when they came together. It was, Caesar is Lord! That was their cry. Caesar is Lord! Paul says to them, And so God has exalted him to the highest place. And given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Get it? <laughs>